This is an RNZ podcast. Last Monday, RNZ's Conan Young was out and about in Christchurch asking people about COVID and worries about it spreading to their communities. And one woman who worked for a construction company with about 100 employees told him this. A lot of people don't realise what the cost is to business owners by not getting vaccinated and relying on Facebook is to be a a be-all and end-all of knowledge. Where are you getting your research from? Facebook, Instagram or a scientist? Now, that woman declined to state her name or the name of that business, maybe because she was just a private sort of person, but possibly because she feared a backlash via social media from the people she was talking about there on the likes of Facebook and Instagram. And that's not an unreasonable fear in these weird times, as we'll hear. Now, she's not the only one also worried about people doing their own vaccination research on Facebook or Instagram and coming to the wrong conclusions. In a long reflection on the power of big tech platforms last week, the spin-off's managing editor Duncan Grieve noted that as the number of first doses administered began to fall worryingly the previous week, some anti-vaxxers were spamming the Facebook stream of a 1pm press briefing with vaccine falsehoods, while the Prime Minister herself was urging everyone on the stream to get vaccinated as soon as possible. So where's the moderation at Facebook then? The intervention that could stop this from happening? Well... Not here, it seems. The vast majority of Facebook's human moderators are focused on the US, even though 90% of Facebook's users are elsewhere. And when Duncan Grieve asked Facebook where its moderators for New Zealand were, the only response was a statement from a nameless Facebook company spokesperson who said this. Our content moderation approach is global and operates 24-7 across multiple time zones and in many different languages. And that didn't help very much. Duncan Grieve concluded that two of the biggest and most profitable companies the world has ever known, Facebook and the search titan Google, operate here with less regulation than the average local takeaway or taxi firm. And he added, it's our society that pays the price for the misinformation that proliferates on their platforms. The New Zealand Herald also published Duncan Greaves' critique last week to a bigger audience than a spin-off alone could attract, but still, his urging for more oversight would, you'd think, make about as much impact on Mark Zuckerberg as the worries of that anonymous construction company woman fearing the day-to-day consequences of COVID misinformation in Christchurch. However, those at Facebook's top table were certainly worried when a former employee from its own misinformation team testified in the US Congress last week and went very public on national TV. But its own research is showing that content that is hateful, that is divisive, that is polarizing, it's easier to inspire people to anger than it is to other emotions. Misinformation, angry content is enticing to people and keeps them on the platform. Yes. And after Francis Hugan's whistleblowing, the New York Times obtained a recording of an online Mark Zuckerberg Q&A session with Facebook employees. The Times reported him as saying that Hugan's claims about the platform's power to polarise people were pretty easy to debunk. But an earlier set of leaked internal documents published by the Wall Street Journal called The Facebook Files also showed that the social network knows all about many of the ill effects that it creates. Mark Zuckerberg in turn insisted that Facebook spends more on research and on safety than larger companies like Apple, Microsoft and the dominant search engine Google. And while the timing might be a coincidence, Google held a virtual summit last week called 
fighting misinformation in the Asia-Pacific region. Now, in that meeting, Google officers restated the company's core mission to index the world's information for us all, regardless of political viewpoints. And the vast bulk of that stuff is either extremely handy or harmless. But Google also owns the world's preeminent video sharing platform, YouTube, and that houses millions of hours of fact-free comment and claims, endlessly and algorithmically boosted to millions of fresh eyeballs, along with the often toxic text comments that accompany them. Google's Asia-Pacific head of trust and safety, Saikat Mitra, told the online meeting that about 20,000 people at Google were working on misinformation detection, and he said Google had invested about $1 billion in content moderation, including on YouTube. Google staff has pointed to partnerships that Google has formed with respected news organisations, such as the Associated Press and official outfits like the Election Commission of India, meaning that users of Google Search and Assistant would be more likely to get legit information, especially at times like election time. They also said efforts to counter manipulation and search engine optimization were improving too, and that Google often goes even further to prevent harm. One example given was against the growing number of bogus poor-quality rehab centres in the US targeting vulnerable people searching Google for addiction treatment options. Google severely restricted the number of rehab-related search ads in late 2017, and in the months that followed, all rehab facilities saw a stunning 96% decline in the reach of ads. Google eventually resumed ads for certified drug and alcohol rehab facilities last February, but only for businesses that had completed a certification program, which cost each one around $3,000. But while this intervention does seem to have had a good effect, it also shows how Google's overwhelmingly dominant in that online ad market. Now in Australia, the government there has confronted that dominance and the conduct of Facebook and other online platforms. Back in February, it became the first country in the world to use its competition laws to force Facebook and Google to pay for the news media's content. And Facebook, you might remember, packed a sad about that and pulled all news off the feeds of its Aussie users, but only for a short time. Google, by contrast, started striking deals with news publishers to pay them for carrying their content. And major and medium-sized media companies are now using that income to expand and hire more journalists. Just last week, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison hinted at further action on harassment and misinformation. He told reporters the government was focused on holding big social media companies to account for the action of its users. We all know who each of us are. We're responsible for the things that we say and that we do. But yet, social media has become a a coward's palace where people can just go on there, not say who they are, destroy people's lives and say the most foul and offensive things to people and do so with impunity. Now, that's not a free country where that happens. That's not right. They should have to identify who they are. And, you know, the companies, if they're not going to say who they are, well, they're not a platform anymore. They're a publisher. They're a publisher. And you know what the implications of that means in terms of those issues. Now, no politician here has said anything like that about the big tech companies, although the Broadcasting and Media Minister Chris Farfoy has said he's watching what's happening in Australia. Now, also taking part in that Google Summit on Misinformation last week was political science and journalism expert, Associate Professor Andrea Carlson from
from Melbourne's La Trobe University, who earlier this year published a landmark report on how misinformation might be tackled in this part of the world. The funder of that report, incidentally, was Facebook itself. And this week, Professor Carlson published The Grand Bargain, a new analysis of that groundbreaking deal struck with Australian news media in which she says big tech's hold over the media industry may be set to change. I guess at face value, there's clearly a problem for democracies globally, as you've said in the introduction there, um, about how you manage this unregulated space that enables digital platforms unprecedented market share of advertising and as a conduit for misinformation and disinformation. But if I could be a little bit more controversial, I think the answer in Australia really lies with the fact that we have Rupert Murdoch's News Corp as a dominant media player in our media marketplace. Murdoch and his publications have been putting pressure on the government for some time to address the growing market share of big technology companies such as Google and Facebook. This led to the government um, ordering an ACCC inquiry into the market share of the digital platforms in 2017 when the current Prime Minister was then the Treasurer. That inquiry reported back with a host of recommendations and among them was that Australia establish a news media bargaining code to get the companies to pay for third-party news content on their websites. And the other component that came out of that, which has since been developed, is a voluntary code of practice for the platforms on how to manage misinformation and disinformation. Facebook recently has been under heaps of pressure. Um, the Wall Street Journal and the, the Facebook files, uh, Francis Hugan, the whistleblower, for example, do you think that has actually damaged the company because they've written out scandals like Cambridge Analytica and so on before and they're still as powerful and profitable as ever? Yeah, I think it has a cumulative effect. But I think what was particularly potent about these um, alleged or these allegations, was that at the heart of them is young people. That, And that's why we've seen a greater call of action, I think, with these latest allegations, particularly in the US, where there's such reticence to limit freedom of expression under the First Amendment right. Look, Andrea, it was probably the timing, just a coincidence, but Google uh, for the Asia-Pacific region held a, a summit, an online virtual gathering uh, to talk about its um, efforts to counter misinformation uh, just last week. You and I were both um, a part of that. Now, the the company's officers and executives who spoke there, they seem pretty comfortable with the efforts they made to enhance trust and safety and money put into um, moderation. There didn't seem like a sense of sort of crisis or um, a public relations problem such as Facebook seems to be facing. Do you think Google, which is you know so dominant in its field of search, is actually doing a good job because it owns YouTube and there's an awful lot of that stuff on that platform. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, it's really great to see the companies engaging with the problem of mis- and disinformation because it's a fire hydrant that is just keeps flowing, enormous amounts of information. But are the companies doing enough? I think there's always more that can be done because this is a global problem that's not going away anytime soon. And it was good that you and I were invited along to listen to what's going on. But I think there needs to be more formalised engagement with all the different stakeholders, whether they be journalists or civil society actors or uh, academics uh, and policymakers to really look at the multiple ways that fake news can be addressed. Uh, It's not a problem that can be solved by just one platform as it runs across all platforms. 
Well, you were the lead author of a big report that came out last February about misinformation in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, in that, uh, the report says that the spread of global online misinformation has the potential to erode foundational elements of modern civilization. That's pretty serious. Uh, and also saying uh, misinformation surrounding COVID-19 has exposed the broader potential of information disorder on the internet that could jeopardise public health and safety. But what, what other sort of conclusions and, and actual recommendations did you uh, come up with in the, in the report that you thought might actually help governments, you know, in this part of the world or elsewhere, actually deal with the effects of all that? This uh, research was part of a research award that I received from Facebook, which was in the lead up to Australia developing its own mis- and disinformation code, which I mentioned before. And one of the things that I was looking at was all the different ways that governments can address that problem. And the reason I looked to the Asia-Pacific, namely Singapore and Indonesia, is because those two countries, they've actually legislated against fake news, which is a pretty serious thing to do. And it's problematic in many ways because the government gets to determine what is fake news and they also get to determine uh, how they're going to respond to it. And it may not surprise some listeners that when you give governments that much power, the targets of these fake news laws in those countries has largely been journalists and political opposition, um, both messengers of information that governments may not like. I happened to be in um, Singapore a few years back when they were starting to debate what became the Protection from Online Falsehoods and Manipulation Act, or I think POFMA, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and people said, look, this is dangerous in a place, I mean, Singapore already has, uh, you know, some authoritarian tradition and um, this this could be dangerous, allowing the government to essentially determine um, what misinformation might be and then, and then act on it. Uh, now that we have a crisis such as COVID, does it actually give them more scope to be able to knock down and take out stuff that is demonstrably you know, not in accordance with the science and you know, has the serious potential to misinform people and uh, have public health consequences. Are they actually better off for having uh, a, a blunt instrument like that to be able to deal with the problem in a crisis? I'm sure some of the policymakers in Singapore would argue yes, and POFMA has been able to capture some of the misinformation around COVID, particularly around harmful treatments and um, the efficacy of vaccines and that sort of misinformation. But the problem is, um, from my perspective, there were already laws in place that could have dealt with that misinformation without the very heavy-handed approach of anti-fake news laws. And in fact, um, Singapore is currently debating a bill in its parliament that looks to go even further, which is cracking down on foreign interference. And for the journalists that have managed workarounds in Singapore by registering their companies offshore or by um, publishing in offshore um, locations, they might be captured by this new legislation if it goes through. So uh, in terms of democratic freedoms, there's real problems with the legislation, that there needs to be a multi-pronged approach. And that means that you need to have mitigation measures against fake news, um, such as fact-checking, taking down harmful content. And it also needs to involve all the stakeholders that uh, that play a role in policing online information, whether it's policymakers, other digital platforms, community-based organisations. And 
important lesson was to avoid government overreach, which we've just been speaking about, not giving too much power to government to be the arbiters of what is fake news in case it is weaponised and misused. There's also a need to invest in digital education and media literacy programs. And um, one that you would like, Colin, to support quality journalism because the uh, antidote to low quality information is evidence-based information and quality journalism can provide that. And then finally, the platforms need to work together and also provide a greater level of transparency to the public about how they're handling mis and disinformation what they're taking down and what they're leaving up. Because just as we don't want to give governments too much power, I don't think anyone, want, anyone wants a commercial operator to also necessarily determine what speech is heard and what speech isn't, unless, of course, there's an imminent harm threat. Indeed. And you mentioned there mitigation uh, being an important thing. So you have the Australian Communications and Media Authority. This is your regulator. So... If there is, say, COVID-19 misinformation, something that could have serious consequences, whether it's in a news media platform, a news media publisher has put that up, or it's just something on social media on one of the big platforms like Facebook, can Australians complain about it and can the ACMA actually strike it down, get it get it removed? Our regulator looks um, to more legacy media content and can um, issue warnings or even suspend licences if need be to um, broadcasters. But when it comes to online mis and disinformation, the new code that was put in place is a voluntary one and it's self-regulation. And at the moment, there's no provision in the Act that went through Parliament to give any power to ACMA to be able to step in. And the government and has left the door open for it to go from being a voluntary regulation to a mandatory co-regulation, which is the pathway that Europe is now going down. Europe started with a voluntary regulatory code, which is what Australia has modelled its code on, and found that um, it just wasn't achieving the successes that the Europeans were hoping for, and that's why they're now going down the mandatory pathway. And the Australian government with ACMA is watching to see how this self-regulation works in Australia to see whether Australia, they need to step in at some point and is something that will be revealed in coming months of how the public can deal directly with the overarching body called Digi, which all the platforms belong to, if they see something that they don't agree with. Yes, there was a representative from uh, the DIGI group um, at the Google Summit last week that we both took part in, and she was speaking in positive terms about this code they have, and she was saying this has actually been adopted by, among others, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, TikTok, Twitter. In your mind, is it effective, albeit that it's new, is it effective that uh, all those groups are signing up to an agreed code? Well, I think it's good news that they're leaning in and they are being signatories. But keep in mind, I'm not sure they had a lot of choice as um, an, another piece of legislation I think we'll talk about in a, in a moment, the News Media Bargaining Code. When that was being debated, there was enormous backlash from the tech giants. Both Google and Facebook threatened to leave Australia and, in fact, Facebook acted on that promise and pulled its news sites from um, Australia uh, Australia's internet for uh, um, about a week, signing up to the code 
shows that they've got some good faith there. But I do think it's too early to tell how well it's working. Because all the platforms are quite different, their reports can also be different and they don't have to opt into every um, of the seven pillars that the code covers. So we need to see with time um, whether there's opting in and out of those seven pillars and how detailed the reports are, the level of transparency, and also whether they adequately deal with public complaints. Well, just recently, um, Andrea, a report came out about the news media bargain and code that that I think you wrote. This was, I think, the first really comprehensive look at um, how that bargain and code is progressing. I mean, is is it working well for Australian news and media and journalism? Because I read recently, for example, the Australian uh, office of The Guardian which is now a global brand, uh, uh, that has been hiring journalists, launching projects off the back of money that it's getting from uh, having its uh, getting payments from the big platforms for using their news online. Yes, again, this is a really new development in Australia. The News Media Bargaining Code came into being earlier this year. So far, there's been 14 deals done between media companies with Google and there's been 11 done with Facebook. There's been interest also from the UK, Canada and even the USA on adopting something similar. This is interesting because in the past, when countries have tried to get big tech to pay for news on their platforms, they've used copyright mechanisms. The Australian version uses competition law in order to compel the only Google and Facebook um, are named in the law to compel them to pay third parties. The problem with the code, though, it would seem, is this picking and choosing about who gets to do a deal with the big tech companies and who doesn't. You have to have an income of $150,000 for three of five years that have gone past. So that means smaller companies and startups are excluded. Facebook's been a bit tougher in picking and choosing who they're doing deals with. And so the conversation, for example, which is a public interest journalism provider, has been excluded by Facebook. And they're pretty unhappy about that because Google has done a deal with them. So we also need to watch this code really closely to see whether, first of all, who gets to do a deal and then whether it translates to what the policy intention is, which is to produce more public interest journalism. And you mentioned that The Guardian have been um, hiring off the back of this, which is to be applauded. But at the same time, News Corp's been slashing jobs. Um, and they've been enormous beneficiaries of the News Media Bargaining Code. While it's um, commercial in confidence, media reports that I hear are fairly reliable um, suggest that they have made $30 million out of the deal that they've done on the code. And that's not necessarily translating into journalism jobs or into public interest journalism. So it sparked my interest. And with colleagues, one of the things we're endeavouring to do is to be able to map what the progress is of the news media bargaining code over the next three years. Well, here the government identified a deficit in public interest journalism and uh, what it called at-risk journalism and set up a a fund running for three years, $50 million uh, or more in it that will pay out for specific projects. That's attracted a bit of criticism because it increases dependence, suddenly creating a dependence among those media companies to fund its journalism. So the idea of getting it not from government but perhaps from these platforms would be appealing to a lot of people here. Do you think maybe New Zealand should try and follow what Australia has done? 
well, far be it for an Aussie to tell New Zealanders um, how what they should be doing. But for democracies like Australia and New Zealand, there has been a chronic crisis of underfunding of newsrooms. And this has been going on for the most part of this century. So there does need to be something that steps into the breach to be able to fund journalism if we value quality journalism. And I think in democracies we do, we understand that that public sphere is informed by quality information. So um, New Zealand's not immune to the same crisis in funding that Australia has experienced and elsewhere. And I hope that there is a contagion effect, that big tech does take the responsibility seriously and does support quality journalism. And I think the news media bargaining code is one way to do that. I mean, partly it comes down to public expectation in a way. Maybe some politicians will be kind of laughed at here for when they've talked big about, uh, yeah, we need to get a fairer deal and tax the likes of Google and Facebook more. The, the public just sort of said, oh, yeah, like that'll ever happen. There doesn't seem to be any kind of public expectation that the government would be able to lever these enormous companies into a position where they would actually give up money to support journalism. Well, one of the things that made it so compelling, I think, for Facebook and Google to uh, be part of the news media bargaining code was they were trying to limit their exposure to this happening in much bigger markets, such as Europe and in um, the US. But they also didn't want too much noise coming from the Australian end. But there is global interest in this code because it is a problem all democracies are facing, someone's got to pay for journalism. And given there's so much advertising that has migrated online and a lot of journalistic content is there for free um, and the platforms are the beneficiaries of that because it attracts readers and viewers, then there is some, um, some exchange that can be negotiated and Australia has shown that. And finally, Andrea, if I could take it back to where we began with the, the misinformation, uh, the hot topic of the moment. I mean, for years, people were saying about the likes of Google and Facebook that they grew so big and so fast, carried so much content, that it was more than they could possibly monitor, let alone actually effectively and fairly moderate. I mean, do you see that ever changing? I mean, I guess there's AI and things like that that, that companies might be able to adopt. Will they ever be able to get control of the huge amount of stuff that's on there um, and, and effectively enforce their own terms of service about what's fair and proper and decent for the, the rest of society. Fake news is not a new problem. We've had it for centuries, nor is propaganda or misinformation. But what is new in this era is the speed and the spread and how fast it can travel around the globe that is made possible by these interconnected digital networks and the algorithmic distribution of information. It needs to be um, involved collaboration and a multi-pronged response, including the public taking responsibility for what they share. And the platforms can do more in this space too. They are developing or have developed um, AI technologies to be able to grab a lot of this stuff before it gets traction. And, of course, they also have um, manual uh, interceptors that are taking down information that's harmful because it's not going away anytime soon and nor are the platforms which also offer great benefits to us. And do the companies finally uh, really have a responsibility to 
actually address these things in smaller territories like New Zealand? Because at the moment it feels like they only really respond and put their efforts in in the really big markets, particularly the US, where most of the moderation, it seems, is, is focused upon. Country in New Zealand's kind of an afterthought tacked onto the Australian market, and uh, I don't know how big the Australian market's even regarded by the likes of Facebook and Google uh, in their, their whole global enterprise. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, um, New Zealand did become a real central focus after the tragic events with the um, massacre at the mosques. And uh, so I don't think um, it will be forgotten because of that um, terrible unfolding of events. But, uh, and, and in one sense, that's also something that the New Zealand government can remind the platforms of if ever they aren't listening or appear not to be um, addressing the concerns of policymakers in New Zealand, um, that harm can happen in smaller countries just as it can in larger company, uh, larger countries, and there's a responsibility to mitigate that harm across all jurisdictions, regardless of the marketplace size. That was Andrea Carlson, a former journalist who's now Associate Professor of Politics and Media at Melbourne's La Trobe University. Earlier this year, she published a landmark report on how misinformation might be tackled in this part of the world, and this month, an analysis of that deal struck by the tech platforms and the Australian news media industry called The Grand Bargain.